My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is Ashley Monday. Ashley is the director of Thrive by Sweet Rush, which is a consulting firm based down in North Carolina. And she leads an expert team of culture and leadership consultants who help guide clients to create the vision and pathway to human-centered cultures, places where the thriving of every team member and the connection to purpose of every team member becomes the beating heart of whatever else that organization does in the world. Ashley's career over the past decades uh, has been really incredible. And she and I dive into the question of purpose and how purpose sits at the center of our life, of the work that we do in the world, of the communities and organizations that we're a part of. As you'll get from this conversation, she's just a a deeply dynamic, life-loving person who has spent so much of her, her life's work deepening into these questions of what it means to thrive in the world and how purpose can help serve as an anchor for our thriving. If you're curious at, at all about what it looks like to transform cultures on an organizational scale, Ashley co-authored a paper on just that topic, and we'll include a link to that in the show notes for this episode. But whether or not you care about that, I hope that you take away the power of falling in love with life, the power of asking the questions that most of us simply aren't given permission to ask or not given the invitation to ask. And even if a part of us feels called to, feels curious, we are in spaces where, where it just doesn't seem relevant. And Ashley makes a beautiful case for the deep, fundamental, foundational relevance of asking the big questions of purpose and meaning. So, let's get settled in. And hear what Ashley has for us. Hi, Ashley. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. Thanks, Andy. It's great to have you here. So great to be here. On this yeah. rainy, cold day in Asheville, North Carolina. <laughs> yeah, we've got a, uh, we've got kind of a. It's been weird up here in Boston. We've we've had like forty, fifty, sixty degree days, and then suddenly it was ten degrees, and now today it's back up in the forties again. So it's kind of gray and cloudy and a little windy outside, but. Uh, good day to be inside talking to an interesting person so happy you're here with me yeah i agree and i love we are maybe the place i think i want to start has something to do with this the this idea of coincidence or or synergy like we were kind of touched on that a bit before we started recording and we touched on it because one 
we have this really wonderful surprise mutual connection with with uh, Chris Colbert, who's uh, used to be the director of the Harvard iLab, which is how I met him, and used to run an ad or be part of an ad agency where you worked, which is how you met him, and now hosts this great podcast called Insert Human, which is he's just doing awesome stuff in the world. And we didn't even know that, but we got connected because another guest on my show, Max Cloud, this amazing spiritually grounded leader, said, you got to talk to Ashley. So I sort of said like, wow, Max is saying this and, and she knows Chris. And then here we are, you know, like that, that was it. Now the universe has brought us together and I would just love to, and you like sort of said, yeah, that I pay attention to that. When I hear about someone or something more than once from multiple places, I pay attention to that. So I just love to play with that. Start with that concept. Like what, what's, what's exciting or meaningful to you about noticing coincidences and moving towards them as opposed to just letting them fly by. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. I, I come from an interesting background in that my mom was total new age 70s mom. So she went to Deepak Chopra's retreat center before he was Deepak Chopra. And when I think I was in high school, she read the book. Oh, I'm the Celestine Prophecy. And she was telling my sisters and I about everything was energy. And my sisters and I just were over it. We're like, Mom get grounded in reality. Meanwhile, my dad was an attorney turned engineer. He has so many degrees behind him. So logic was the path to my dad's heart. And I, I had a an appreciation for my mom's whimsy and appreciation of life and also a fear that it wasn't socially acceptable to mm. believe in that. Mm. And, um, and I think particularly being a daughter and with some of the messages we get about women that succeed, particularly in like the seventies and eighties, we had the big shoulder padded women who <laughs> <laughs> could have been linebackers in the boardroom. <laughs> and so there was, there were some messages about that. I couldn't, I couldn't take that on. Mm. And yet there, it was something that just played with my imagination, um, in college, I started to study comparative religions, and I was fascinated with what brought people together and the stories that they tell and the mythologies that they weave. And I realized that spirit and interconnectedness and um, sometimes this sense of magic uh, was woven into all of these different religious traditions. So it started to open open it up to, for me. Mm. My early 20s, I went through an experience where I went through a breakup. I had been with someone for about five years at that time. I had worked for a dot-com. It was one of the first ones to go public. I was third employee to 200th employee. And I ended up just deciding that I was going to go to India. And I told people that I was going to study the living religions. So to study Hinduism and Buddhism and Mm. Theravada Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism. But really, I was going in search of the living me. And that journey over six months, and really since then, my perspective has been attuned to some different types of messages. Um, And I think we uh, often when we get to these threshold places Mm. where we are uncertain and the pros and cons lists and the logic just doesn't apply, it just gets to this like sticky um, sticky widget place we have to start looking for other messages and like we were saying earlier 
we're meaning-making systems as humans. So we're trying to make sense of the world. And when we can start to piece together some things that make sense to us, they might not be universally, objectively logical to other people, but it starts to make sense to us. There's there's a line. There's one of my favorite poems is by William Stafford, and it's um, The Way Things Are. It goes something along the lines of, um, there's this thread that we follow and we follow it through life and people die and we have wins and we go through all of these things and people don't understand and we explain, but there's this thread and they still don't understand. But in something about then when we look back, we can explain the thread. Like it's so much easier to explain the story of how we got to where we are. Um, and it makes, it seems to make perfect sense, but when we're living into it, often we're piecing together these little bits of meaning, um, that we're extracting. And, and so for me, particularly, actually, my mom gave me Joe Jaworski's book, Synchronicity, um, The Path mm-hmm. of Leadership. Of course, my mom, she's, yeah. such a she's character. like, you're ready now. You're, <laughs> you're ready, ready now. now. Here's <laughs> yes, your young Jedi. And it blew my mind mm. to know that Shell Oil, so Joe Jaworski worked at Shell Oil. He's now the um, chairman of Genron Company. So very well-respected leader. He was working at Shell Oil in the 70s when they were starting to realize that there was an end to free petroleum, you know, that, that petroleum was not an endless source and that things were going to change. And the, he didn't know, they didn't know exactly where the future was going to bring them. But they started to work on something called scenario planning, where they looked at potential future scenarios, a number of them, and then looked at, based on their capabilities, how would they plan for those future scenarios? Mm. In that process, there was Betty White and Peter Senge was involved and some really interesting thought leaders around how we sense into, they all now call it presencing, Otto Scharmer calls it presencing from MIT. How do we sense into potential futures together? And, um, and it, it sort of lifted this veil between the logic and the mysticism. Um, it, and maybe mysticism isn't the right word because that might turn some people off. And I think linguistics is really interesting in this mix. Mm. But it's like, how do we begin to piece together meaning that our conscious mind might not be aware of? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. There's so much, there's so much juice in there. Let me just, just let it land for a second and see what's capturing my attention most i'm actually like noticing this moment where in college you decided to study comparative religion so there is some even though there's a part of you that was kind of afraid that that wouldn't be socially acceptable and you had this father who was very like credentialed and respectable by the very kind of rational structural maybe even masculine as a word some of these sort of kind of social norms you had this kernel and you're like, cool, dad, I, I'm going to go study comparative religion though. <laughs> like, so could, <laughs> yeah. could, could we like zoom in on that moment? Cause that feels really important as like a, as a turning point towards your willingness to travel to another country, to s- start reading a book that your mom recommended when you, when earlier you wouldn't have any of it. Like, so what was going on there? Do you? Yeah. Super interesting. I sometimes say that I have the curse of the curious mind. Mm. So my mind has always extrapolated and explored and I I get curious about people and what motivates them and why things are the way they are. And there was part of me that was cautious. And I'm trying to think about that. It was right before I, I was studying journalism 
and that the dot-com was starting to take off. And I remember my energy around journalism was waning, um, whereas my curiosity and the energy that I had, I took a symbol myth ritual class mm. and I was fascinated. And I found myself um, challenging. There was uh, the, the professor was um, working. I, th- I think he was working on his PhD. He's working on his dissertation. And so he was sort of trying it out on our, our class. And I just found myself being fascinated and he would reference something and I would go read it. And, um, at first Mm. it felt like a hobby and then, um, but I never fully declared it as my major. So at that point I was still weighing the differences and I got to a point where things felt unbearable and I stepped away, but that same, like whether you call it the hero's journey or the heroine's journey, where I had a moment of realization of questioning, um, like I can remember I had a, a great career and I left and I was studying mediation and a number of different group process methodologies. And I told my dad I was creating a consultancy to work with team dynamics. And I called it, um, oh, it's so funny, I'm blanking on the name. Uh, I'll come back to that. <laughs> it's so interesting. I don't even remember the name of my own. Wow. Yeah. Cause you've just been on this like journey since. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so. I showed him my website and my dad looked at it and he said, well, I think you can make money doing that. And it was like a stab to my heart, but it also, it's like those pivotal moments where you say, okay, I'm alone in this, in this journey. Like, is this, am I really doing this? And, and there's something about that moment just before stepping out that seems mm. so critical. It's like, once you step out and once you're on it, I mean, at that point I had the website and I had the business partner and we had the business plan. So I was doing it, um, but it, it was that moment of sharing it with my dad and deciding to just go for it that made the difference. Yeah, yeah, that moment of stepping out. There's something really important there. I sense the that's a really vulnerable and tender moment. I, I at least I'll speak for myself. Like there are times when, particularly the people I care about most or whose opinions I care about most, is sort of this like either I'm just gonna not share it with them because I know they're not going to like it. And I just can't even deal with that. Or I'm going to share it with them. And I really hope that they endorse it. And either way, that moment is really important because whether or not they endorse it, you're essentially saying this is important. Mm -hmm. Like I wouldn't be feeling so nervous or, or excited about, about sharing this with my dad, let's say if it wasn't important. Mm-hmm. And that, that data point, if we can use that language, like that, I should listen to that, that this is clearly really important to me because if it wasn't, I really wouldn't care whether or not my dad cared if I could make money around it. I just feel like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, this is a thing. But I just like, love that, that you went on this journey from myth to group process. And, and clearly there's like connections there that you wouldn't have found if you hadn't listened to that moment first with your professor. And then that moment of like sharing with your dad. And I wonder, yeah, I just had, what does that bring up for you? As you just notice the kind of like importance of those moments, those, I think you call them threshold moments or threshold times. It's all of the, I think that there's a tipping point where we experience heightened states of I'll call it arousal, which sounds 
um, risque, but actually it's just when, when our mm. energy rises mm. up, when we actually feel activated. And um, I, I work with executive leadership teams and I see, I've worked with the global innovation team and I've seen how certain people around their own disciplines I feel energy, which is so ironic that I'm using my mom's language, but I, I feel their energy pick up. And, and I yes. think when, when we feel our energy pick up around certain topics or certain ways of being or certain ways of interacting, it's something for us to notice. And mm. when we're not noticing it, that's where depression and anxiety can come into place, restlessness. So it's something that I, I'm always sensing into, even as I lead a, a consulting group now, I am sensing into which clients are really the best fit for us and where's my heart in this work and what am I getting excited about and what have mm. I been excited about in the past? And even at this point in time, I feel this emergence happening in me that isn't fully defined yet, which is an uncomfortable place to be. Hilda Radner said it was delicious ambiguity. And I'm like, oh, I want, I want I want something clear, but but I'm sensing a shift happening in myself and with mm. my mm. So that's the journey of, of being human is um, is working with that. Mm. I really want to co-sign and underline the the power uh, and magic that happens when you notice that heightened energetic state in yourself and in others. Mm. Um, that is something we, I, I, I think everyone has access to that awareness to varying degrees. It's, it's like a non-rational yet very clear, oh, this person's with me or this person, person's excited or this person has something to say right now. And like, I, I need to let them say it. There's something mm -hmm. there that's really amazing. Yeah, a big part of the work that I do with um, with teams is to develop self-awareness. So if mm. we notice, like I notice for myself, right now I have a number of different dynamics going on. We're in between nannies. I'm like, so my my own sense of internal regulation is slightly off, but I'm noticing what that feels like to me. Mm. Um, at the same time, if we're aware, if we can center ourselves and be aware of our own patterns and do some work to ground ourselves, it could be as simple as looking at pictures of places that you love to go, um, breathing for a few minutes, then when we show up with another person, we actually are accessing more of our awareness, more mm. of our awareness of another person, of the emotions, the energy that they bring, um, and we can observe it. And we also kind of can attune to it. There's something called mirror neurons. I'm sure you're aware of it. And um, Emma Sapala, um, who's at Yale now, she's been doing some research around it that if one person's heart rate goes up, it's likely that another person in the room's heart rate will go up. So mm. if you think about mm. that, if I'm, if I'm noticing my own, uh, my own nervous system, how my nervous system is regulating, and all of a sudden I just start to feel elevated, like my heart rate goes up, that's something to notice. And, and what I invite my teams to do is when they, if they're developing that self-awareness to lean into the other person and say, is this the conversation we're supposed to have? Or is there something else that needs to be said? Mm. And there mm. are these, these questions that can create the space for people to 
um, bring what they have. Because what happens often is that if people feel excited about an idea or triggered by an idea, they don't like it. Um, and that doesn't get said into a, into the group. Mm-hmm. Um, that person is likely to um, to do a number of things. They could check out. They they just become disengaged. They can become confrontational um, about someone else's idea. Mm. And so, developing some group awareness of like, the different dynamics and creating time for that—that's that's one of the big things. Um, you know, Google's study on psychological safety. One of the the number one factors that they they found was that the groups didn't always follow the agenda, and they challenged each other. They went off topic, and um, that's that's an important factor, right? That we're always wrestling with. Like time is one of our um, yeah. most precious resources right oh now, my gosh. and yet, like, how do we create enough of an agenda around it, enough space around it to allow, like, to go back to the earlier conversation, synchronicity to allow what is to come into the the moment? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I would even go so far as to say that it's not only an important factor to psychological safety, like that whole project Aristotle research is awesome, but it gets to that deeper level that, that if we're not allowing in the synchronicity, in other words, those spontaneous moments that, that might quote unquote, feel like they're taking up more time, but that might actually in the long run, completely change the direction of the company or the team or, or what have you then we're actually wasting huge amount of time, money, resources, energy on things that aren't really that enlivening and exciting. And that yes. like, like we actually, if we slow down for the unknown and let it come in, all, all sorts of unexpected and really powerful new results can emerge from that. So there's just a sort of paradox of like letting go of the need for a perfect agenda and a perfect result, which then allows in all sorts of, beautifully imperfect, but really exciting, enlivening new ways of thinking, feeling, seeing, and doing in the world. So just so powerful. I would also say that there are some creative ways to to do that. It doesn't have to be that every meeting has to be three hours long with your team or that there have to be these long spaces in between. Uh, a friend of mine who's an OD consultant was working with a group from the Pentagon and they he was seeing repeated patterns come up. And he finally said, okay, I want to know within, I think it was like a two week or three week period, we're going to get everyone in one room for 24 hours and sit in a circle. And we're just going to talk about these issues until, you know, until the 24 hours is up, which is pretty intense, but creative way to create the space to, um, for people to air what their opinions are and what they're, they're thinking. Right. I mean, I could imagine probably part of his intuition around that move had something to do with the fact that like, you probably all haven't ever talked about these dynamics ever. (laughs) So we might need 24 hours to get it all out on the table, right? But if you, instead, if you have a a practice of doing that once a week or once a month or whatever, then maybe you only need 10 minutes or maybe you only Mm -hmm. need an hour. And then over the course of a year, you've spent 52 hours, you know, once a week, like surfacing all this incredible latent energy and and curiosity and drive that otherwise would get sort of segmented away. Exactly. And that idea of slowing down to speed up along with that, one of the the things that is really, it's at the center of the work that I do is to connect people with people. So 
there's an exercise that I often do with with leadership teams where I, I will share a poem. Um, I, I like poetry. I know that a lot of people hate it. I know some people. I love it. So we're you're in good. You're we're <laughs> in shared some, company here. You know, is it so? Well, I often will say, "How many of you like poetry?" And you might get like. 70, 80% of the people that raise their hands and I'll say, well, 10% of you just lied because I know that there's some people that think that they should like poetry. But the reason why I'm using it is that it takes us out of our typical ways of thinking, our neurotypical ways of thinking, Mm. where we we have the neurons that wire together, fire together, right? So we just start, we're habitual creatures. So we just, not only do we do the same things over and over again, unless we have intention um, and a plan and and some accountability. Typically, we need to be intentional about expanding our minds. One of my teachers um, was a a movement therapist, and she said, "Our we, we're so used to moving in fast, upright, and forward ways, mm. and mm. and that's true in the ways we think. And just if we begin to explore moving different ways, it opens up our peripheral awareness." One of another mentor of mine is Michael Jones. He's a pianist, and he I met Michael at the International Leadership Association, and nice. at dinner, Michael um, had told me that he worked. He worked with a lot of uh, major corporations like Quaker executive team, and he would have them lay under his piano. He would have them bring in a Steinway. And he said the difference of how leaders relate after they've had an experience that um, and almost uh, it, it pierces the, the veil of, of this, this way of being and the ways we interact and the, the typical well-trad ways of, of talking when they hear this music it actually transforms the way they show up. So I use a, uh, a Rilke piece and it's a man stands up during supper. I'll share it with you to the best of my ability of remembering it, but it's, Do you want to take a moment to find it so you can have yeah, it or it literally sure. Yeah. Cause I love Rilke and I want people to hear it. Mm-hmm. So it's a man stands up during supper. Hmm. Sometimes a man stands up during supper and walks outdoors and keeps on walking because of a church that's somewhere in the East and his children say blessings on him as though he were dead. And another man who remains inside his own house stays there inside the dishes and in the glasses. So his children have to go far out into the world toward that same church, which he forgot. So the way I interpret that is that sometimes we're doing the most ordinary thing. And this is actually goes back to like India and so many different pieces we've touched on. We're doing the most ordinary thing. We're getting up or putting on our pants one leg at a time. And we just feel this pull for the church, this, this calling that's far away. You know, it could be metaphorically far, far away. You're an accountant and you're like, oh, I want to be an actor. (laughs) It doesn't have to be literally going to India, Um, but you feel a calling and people think you're crazy. My dad's saying, oh, well, if you think you can make money at that. So people don't necessarily understand it. They, they say, Mm. well, you know, Mm. you've basically given up this life that you've created for yourself. And then other times our sense of purpose is defined by our parents and our grandparents. The way we operate, Bert Hellinger has this great work about family systems. Mm. We 
naturally want to serve those that came before us. No matter what our relationships are like with our parents and grandparents, we're trying to live better than them. We try to live better than their legacy. And for some people who have parents and grandparents that accomplished great things, they could have um, run companies or created foundations. Or as one leader told me, his father was a bus driver. And he would look every single passenger in the eye when he got on the bus and would say, good morning, good evening, nice to see you. And he was respecting the dignity and that level of dignity and respect for another person, for an executive who's very busy. Um, it was something that he held on to as a colonel. So again, that's his way of paying a tribute to the legacy mm. of his father. Mm. So there's there's this aspiration. And sometimes if our parents didn't do great things, like they might have had this passion or this idea or this value that they never self-actualized. They just got stuck and they maybe became bitter and they sat and just watched TV and there's this sadness. There's still a legacy that carries on uh, that of like, how do I do better? How do I serve? So then I have leaders write on plain paper to slow Baroque music. Slow Baroque music has been found to be a similar tempo to the human pulse. Mm. Receptive writing. And you invite people to slow the pen down. And if they come on something in their story that intrigues them, they say, what do I mean by that? Not a dictionary definition. And the question I ask them is to reflect on a time when they've felt their own purpose. So that sense of flow, that sense of unstoppableness, the sense of like, oh, this is so good. Like I would pay someone to do this. Uh, and then reflect on their, their parents and grandparents' sense of purpose and accomplishment mm. and how that might be connecting. Mm. And in that process, as they, they do that, after they're done, I will give them the results of a values assessment that they've taken before. Now, typically, if, if I talk about values without some storytelling involved, people go to a very cognitive place. So in the example of that executive whose father was a bus driver, for a long time, he was telling people, respect, respect is what matters to me. And some people were challenging that because what his behaviors looked like didn't match mm. up with their own definition mm. of respect. But once he shared that story, there was something fundamentally that shifted in people. They saw him differently and they saw his father in him. So I'll give them the results and I have them circle the values that showed up most strongly in their stories. And then to pick ones that really stick out, stuck out to them or stick out to them as values that they wanted, they want to weave into their life more fully. And then they write down the values, beliefs that they have about that value and some actions they want to take to live that value at work. Then I have them share in pairs. I find that sharing in pairs and, and the, the numbers of people that share together is unlocks the psychological safety. Um, totally. When someone writes by themselves, once I put something down on paper, it, I am seeing my own truth. And I can decide how much of that to share. And I tell people, you can share some of your story, all of your story, none of your story. Mm -hmm. Your story is your story. And for some people, their stories are very vulnerable for whatever reasons. And if they felt that, that fear... In fact, don't share it until they really have checked in with themselves and they feel comfortable to bring that to the group. Because sometimes if people overshare, they can go through a, a sickness, like a, a fear. And, yeah, and there's a little vulnerability back. hangover. Exactly. So to check in, but then they, to share their values and their beliefs, the behaviors and some of their stories. Invariably, most people share even just a bit of their stories in these pairs. 
And there's a safety in sharing with one other person. And mm. you also can't hide when there's only one other person. So those two people share and we've seen this again and again and again. And there, there's a life that's born when people share their stories because there's an integration. There's so much than what mm. we present mm. at, the, at the surface of our Mm. logical story, the thread that we tell off the top of our heads versus when we're invited into a poem or you know, listening to music and uh, we access different parts of our story and our emotion. And mm. when we come alive, other people can feel that it goes back to the mirror, mirror neurons and there's an activation that happens. And then we bring people back into the group and we have people, well, before they come back to the group, that the pairs commit to the actions that they're going to take. And before they leave their pair, they commit to a time within two months that they're going to check back in. And it's not to um, hold a ruler against what they said they were going to do. It's a reflective process to say, mm. Oh, what did you, what did you say you were going to do? And why, or why didn't you do that? And, and again, finding that meaning um, a friend of mine, Jotam Heinenberg from Stanford Sea Care does, um, has done a lot of research around pro-social behaviors. And mm. that's the process of reflecting on what we intend to do and coming back and reflecting on why are we why we didn't do it and even maybe picking different values because we realize, oh, you know, I thought that was a top value, but this one isn't. Uh, isn't this one is that creates greater co- coherence in how we share with other people, our intention, how we share with ourselves. Um and also it, it, it lends itself to not beating ourselves up so much, um, you know, Yeah. so then we come back to the group, people share, and I've seen it, um, with a number of different, uh, really high level corporate 1000s, uh, fortune 1000s, uh, executive teams. And no matter who it is, people have stories to share. And when they start to uh, see that, yeah. it fundamentally changes the way that they relate to one another. And when they're working on other problems, it becomes what comes up becomes less personal. Mm. Mm. So first of all, I had a guest on who I want to connect you with Shoshana. So remind me about that after we start recording, because you all are like living in this, the power of creating space for people to deepen into their truer, deeper, fuller story, not just the like kind of social, uh, socially pleasing, acceptable story, but like the fuller story. So I just am so, touched by that i'm wondering and and don't feel like you have to say yes or no this in this moment but i like the the process you just described i sense that a lot of people listening to this would really benefit like even if they just had it on their own if there's some sort of something that we could share with listeners after about that process because it just sounds so cool and even if we can't all like sit underneath the piano and have you read rilke to us there's still i just sense there's power in that so like if there's some version of that we could share with listeners I'd, I'd love to do that yeah um, what we could provide would be a link to some slow baroque music the question of the poem and there's also a personal values assessment that's free from barrett values center that is a nice process well, after you've done your your storytelling then go and pick up the values and there's some exercises you can do after that would be that exercise. sounds great i could i definitely down to listening to some slow baroque music and and like seeing what emerges. It sounds really lovely. Yeah. Um, would you be willing to read the poem one more time? Of course. Yeah. To just like really let it, let all of that you just shared, like the bookend of Rilke and this man walking out the door. I'd love to hear it one more time. Sometimes a man stands up during supper 
and walks outdoors and keeps on walking because of a church that stands somewhere in the east. And his children say blessings on him as though he were dead. Hmm. And another man who remains inside his own house stays there inside the dishes and in the glasses so that his children have to go far out into the world toward that same church, which he forgot. Mm. Mm. I'll also add that there's, there's another translation of it that actually says that it's the same man. So it says, and, and I've talked to a scholar who said that that's actually a more accurate. So it's mm. sometimes a man stands up during supper and the same man in another life remains inside his house. So it's that sliding doors moment. It's like, what are you going to do? Yeah. Yeah. There's a wonderful question and invitation in that. Like for all of us, where, where are we hearing a call that we just have to go answer? And what might it look like? What, what, it, what might it mean for us to do that? And what might we have to leave behind to do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I sense that there's not a, I sense like in a way, maybe this is my bias, but I'm like, oh, I want to be the man who goes out to the church. And, but like, just to notice like, and his kids say blessings as if he were dead. Like there is a sort of an element of real sacrifice for following the call. There's a huge gift and a huge joy, but, but also maybe, some people just say, I got to forget the church. <laughs> I need to, I need to be here with my family. So I don't know. I don't, I don't want to like endorse one choice over the other, but just to really, I sense that real K is really leaning in. Like there is a powerful choice all of us can make about this right now in this moment, you could stand up and walk out the door and keep walking. And where would that lead you? There's a Hindu Acharya who says to me, it's a really hard choice to be a family person. In his mind, you know, to have the full focus, whether it's someone who dedicates themselves to their career or to a mission of an organization, um, but to balance that with the needs of, of a family mm. is mm. is a different path. Yes. And to do it solely with no no other family. It's so it so is. Yes, I know we're both parents, so we can we can emphasize that truth. It's a it's a real journey to find the way to like live that authentically. <laughs> And also yeah. like help this little being who's growing so quickly every day to, to like, how do we just let them grow the way they're meant to, the way we like would let a tree grow, right? Like mm-hmm. just let it happen. Well, do you mind if I riff off of that for a second? Please, I'm yeah. Just having a thought because um, yeah. another, a big part of my work is around large scale cultural transformations. I, I'm moving away from that language we can go into again the linguistics, but cultural design, cultural development, but but very large scale. And one of the big lessons that I've had to learn in my process is I have to show up without attachment to the outcome for the organization. Mm. I can reflect mm. back. I can mm. hold a clear process. I can hold a clear process. I can reflect back. I can check with people about their intention. I can push them toward collective strategy and intention about what they're trying to create together, but I can't do it for them. So mm. that's uh it's constantly a process of sort of gathering in and letting go and gathering in and letting go. <laughs> I mean, it's that the, the quote from the book life of Pi is like, I just keep returning to it, which is life is one long act of letting go. Yes. And I just keep learning. I have to like keep learning that lesson again and again. 
so yeah, there's just the paradox of of where we live in such a external material performance results heavy culture, and it has if we just focus purely without all of the collateral costs and there's like so many layers to it all, but like absolutely results have been produced from this culture as a result of that focus. Mm -hmm. And we have dislocated and disconnected ourselves from this deeper layer of emergence that you, it sounds like you're living in and living with and, and letting yourself grow into uh, and it's I just, always, I want us to, to, yeah, yeah. Tune that up. What do you, what are you noticing? It's a both and, and it's sort of like surfing. It's like mm. always like checking the metrics and checking in and checking and finding the right cadence is important for that. Um, one global innovation team that I worked with, they put their best and brightest on this, this team and they didn't, they'd all gone through IDEO uh, design thinking training, which ideas training and, and, the how they approach design thinking is wonderful and yet it wasn't enough for this group to really drop into collaboration mm. and empathy mm. and mm. To, to do it in a way where they weren't just pushing to towards performance in every moment and defending mm. their territory so it took two years but after two years they got to the point where they had line of sight to several billion dollar business models through co-creating with clients so you know those things can go hand in hand and it's it can be predictive. One of my yoga teacher sister, uh, Montessori teacher sister says like, how much do companies pay you to recognize that when people get along and listen to each other, they can be more effective. <laughs> but then it's like anyone who's been in a family, like I think that the fear is that we'll get stuck in one another's dysfunctional patterns yes. and that we won't get anywhere. Yes. And so um, that's, it's an interesting process. And so that process of setting it up so people can see the quick wins as well as like the stretch areas for, for them. It, there's, there's a play in there that, um, yes. that yes. I'm always working with. I love that surfing metaphor. Yeah. That the deeper work allows for the visible work to emerge. This the results that we can see. So there's nothing, um, there's nothing wrong with results, but there's maybe an invitation to say, look, I know you care about results. And maybe you see me over here as, as trying to steer you away from that or, or to bring you into the sort of complex emotional territory that's going to be too messy and too mucky and not worth it. And you could just go hold yourself up back in your office and get the work done. But it's amazing to imagine. And like, what if we could do that socially, politically, culturally, what mm -hmm. lines of sight might we get for our species, for our, for our nations, for this planet, if we could somehow find a way to soften into some of the, the wisdom and relational work that you're bringing at, at scale. It's really exciting for me to imagine. Well, I'm by nature an optimist and I'm a systems thinker. And I, I have this interesting experience in my life where I was working at Barrett Value Center and we were asked by a think tank consultancy in Iceland to conduct a national values assessment. And we conducted it in August of 2008. And I met Richard Barrett in the Icelandic, um, in a hotel in Iceland. And he was going on the national news and he said, I just got these results. They're not good. Um, and I don't know what I'm going to say. And hmm. 
basically what it was showing was high levels of perceived dysfunction. And um, two weeks later, the economy collapsed. And the, the CEO of this think tank was friends with the president of Iceland. And she said, how did they know? How did they see? Because uh, what Richard ended up saying on the news was, if you were a company, we, we, would, um, we would think you might be on the edge of economic uh, bankruptcy. But as a nation, we have seen that you can sustain higher levels of dysfunction. And then the, the economy collapsed. Um, but we designed wow. national assemblies to talk about rebuilding trust. So again, it's that sense of shared meaning making um, to reach across. In in Iceland, people are fairly homogenous, but we had people of different ages from different mm. Um, mm. socioeconomic groups within Iceland. And similarly, in Latvia, we did a national values assessment. And Latvia, the ethnic Latvians and ethnic Russians have been at odds for hundreds of years. Um, and power has gone back and forth between Latvians and Russians. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like Democrats and Republicans in the U.S. Every issue is just charged with rhetoric and charged with political mm. party, um, mm. you know, partisanship. And what we found were that the desired culture values in Latvia were the same between ethnic Latvians and ethnic Russians. So what I remember most specifically was care for the elderly and the group we were working with, um, had town hall meetings across the country. And they said, We're, we don't want to hear the typical party rhetoric. We want to hear specific answers about each of these, these things that you're desiring for the future of your country. So in the case of care for the elderly, they said, how do you want to, what's, tell us about your parents. Tell us about your grandparents. How are they struggling? What do they need? Mm -hmm. And um, they, mm -hmm. they compiled that. And similarly in Iceland, toggling back and forth, they took the um, the input from the National Assembly and they aggregated it into software. Um, and so they, they're able to see the most popular results and themes and they use that to revise their constitution. Um, wow. So there is there are ways that we can invo involve people in conversations at scale and distill it to something that's more meaningful and actionable than getting stuck in these particular strategies that any particular group might have. Oh, that's so cool. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. I want to have like a whole another interview about what's possible at national and global scale with this kind of work. Maybe we can do that at some point. Yeah. Um, having some interesting conversations with some folks in Ireland right now oh, about the future cool. of Ireland. Ireland is where the EU does an, a lot of testing of their, um, of different initiatives because it's, a uh, you know, small sized um, country and they can see how people respond to it. Mm. Mm. So they're looking at how they can they utilize the sort of the Celtic tiger, that spirit of innovation to think about the future for the EU and Ireland. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. That you shared the Celtic tiger and that sparks for me. I, I don't know if you've connected this dot, but for like that for me connects right back to your, like, I want to take this myth class. I don't know why, but I do. And it's like, Oh, because the power of collective myth and the collective identity, collective story, like there's something about helping people actually see and feel that and name it and embody it and move past the rhetoric to the, like, what does this mean for my grandmother? What does this mean for my kids, for my grandkids? Like those are the kinds of questions that 
we all, I sense here in the States, we all kind of intuitively know we need to be asking, but we're so caught up in, in the polarization that we've lost touch with like, what's our, what's our shared mythology? What's our, what's the American equivalent of the Celtic tiger? So yeah, I just, this is really, I love that you're playing with this stuff. Really exciting. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you, you mentioned earlier Gilda, I think it was Gilda Radner's idea of delicious ambiguity. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And you said, and I, and we kind of breezed past it, but I've been holding it for the past like 30 plus minutes. You said something like, I find myself in a place of emergence and a place of this kind of delicious ambiguity. And I want it to be clear, but it's not, but there's something emerging. And I wonder if it'd be all right if we maybe kind of closed exploring that together. Sure. Feels a little scary. Anytime ambiguity feels scary. <laughs> yeah. Well, I had a part of me right? sense that like, it was like, well, you know, I'm not, maybe this isn't the right place for that. And if you'd, if you'd rather just like name it and let it be, I'm fine. But I just, I sense there's something interesting, meaningful there that might, that, that might at least serve us in our conversation and maybe serve those who are also listening. I, I'm sort of fearless in the way that I I'll enter in and share things. My, um, my only concern is that it won't be of service because it, it might not be fully formed, but I'm willing to go there. This, uh, listen, the Wonder Dome <laughs> is a place for things to be half formed and service to the idea that like this, this conversation is a node in a larger network and someone will hear what's half formed in you and notice that it's half formed in them and it will start to take life. Like I just, I just trust that that's what this show is about. It's not about the fully formed stuff all the time. So I would love, I would just love to play with it in our last five or 10 minutes here. Sure. Do you have a specific question or would you like me to? Well, I like, let's, maybe we could take a moment to sense into it. You know, you named it. You're like, I'm aware of this emergence of this delicious ambiguity. And a part of me wants to kind of retreat from it or wants clarity, but yeah. Like, well, first of all, like, how are you aware of it? What, it, what's telling you that something's emerging? One is having a strong sense of what I, I, I call feeling allergic to certain things where it's like it, things that were bearable before mm. suddenly become unbearable mm. Mm. certain meetings or dynamics. I, it, it's not that I'm, I'm having a big pushback around it. It's just that I, I don't find myself being interested to engage in it anymore. Mm. So mm. that it's, it's sort of this before new things emerge and I hadn't thought about it in this way. It's like, I have to let go of the leaves. I have to go through my autumn. I have to drop some things away too. In fact, to make space for other things to emerge. Mm. Mm. There also is, I have a sense that in this place in my career, I think being in my mid forties is really interesting, right? I have tools, I have experience, I've been successful in, in a number of things and it's easy to get caught up in the doing and the serving other people's expectations. And even for ideas and visions that I created, I created visions and people have embraced them and they've taken, you know, they've taken shape and people are putting it into action and operationalizing it. And one thing that I know about myself is I'm an, I'm an initiator. I'm not a sustainer. Mm, and, mm. and once we start to get in that sustainment and operational, um, I, I have 
a mind to be able to analyze things. Like in the Hogan assessment, he said, mm-hmm. like at least six percent of the population or eight percent of the population can think big ideas and also really do create detailed plans. Mm. And um, so I noticed that sometimes people get very attached to the fact that I can create detailed plans and create clarity. And that's the part where I just do especially as my group is growing, I just find myself saying, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. Yeah. <laughs> I can give you the information for how I see that it could be done, or you could create it and come back to me. Um, so I hadn't named that exactly, but when an idea takes form and then other people gather around it and it sort of takes on its own life force. And I'm being pulled into the gravity of that. And I, mm. I know I'm poetic in my language. I could say it that I had a vision, I created a strategy, it got some traction, we saw results. People got excited about that, got more involved, we were able to grow it. That's poetry. For me, that you're being still being poetic. Like that's just that's just <laughs> acceptable poetry. But yeah, I'm with you. Poetry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so and then being pulled into the, the next level of planning, I'm really feeling allergic to that. And mm, my mind mm. is turning toward what's my next vision. And I'm, I'm particularly interested in working with people who want to work at scale and leaders who want to create impact, who, who know that the way that they've been doing things mm. isn't going to get them to the next iteration. Mm not going to make that leap. They can't keep iterating on what they've done. Mm. And that doing agile and trying to do agile isn't really getting them to the next innovation, that they know the market's changing and they know that they have this amazing talent pool, but they feel like there's something that's amiss. There's work that I I can come in at a high level and bring in the folks and, and do the visioning and um, work with those top leaders or bring in coaches also that around me that work with those top leaders to really create a transformational system uh, or transform the system. And, and then I, I don't, I'm a free spirit. I'm the person that went to India. And <laughs> it's time to get up from the dinner table and walk out the door now. Yeah. Wow. I'm so glad I asked. And I think in particular, like, I want to invite people who are listening to play with that question of like, you use the word allergy. What a great poetic word. Like, what are things that, that you once either loved or at least just assumed to be it? Like, oh yeah, this is what we do. This is how things have always been done. Or I've loved doing this for years and just notice like, do I, am I starting to develop an allergy to this? That's a, what a great internal data point to say, where might I go next? I, maybe it's time to, to step back and listen to some slow Baroque music and do some writing because there's something few, that, something's happening here. <laughs> That's right. Drop a few meanings, lay under a piano and like get, get into it. Yeah. Amazing. Well, I'm excited uh, for the leaders who, who have the, who are ready to say yes to the leap who are ready to say yes to that unknown to get up from their own tables and walk out towards the church with you. It's just clearly you're drinking from all of these amazing wells and it's been really fun to spend a little bit of time. I feel like we opened about 10 doors and I want to walk through all of them in the future, but really glad we opened them and I peered through them a bit. This has been really fun. Yeah. Thank you so much. I love your questions and your, your presence and your willingness to ask the, um, edgy questions. Mm, 
Thanks, Ashley. If people want to find uh, more about your work, where where's the best place for them to go? I would say my LinkedIn profile is the best place right now. And there's there's a link to transforming cultures in larger organizations that a lot of those apply to smaller organizations. And feel free to reach out to me. I don't typically accept just the the random requests, but if you write a note about why um, why you're interested to connect with me, I res- always respond to those. Uh, lovely. Okay. Well, we'll make sure to include the LinkedIn stuff in the show notes. And there's just a ton of ton of resources that you mentioned that we'll also grab in the show notes too. So there's lots of rabbit holes for people to go down. And if you can send over your favorite slow Baroque music playlist, we'll share that too. Will do. Okay. Ashley, anything else you feel called to speak or, uh, or ask or just drop into our conversational space before we complete today? Nope. Amazing. Or anything arise. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for lis- for listening in. Thanks, Ashley, for coming on the show. Sure, it's great to be here. Thanks for tuning in to The Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Sirqua, and audio editing services from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find The Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep this show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now, more than ever.